Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories: an Oklahoma attorney who ran his firm from inside a prison gets in disciplinary trouble with the state bar. Philadelphia paves the way to create the country's first municipal bank as other states begin exploring alternative ways to self-finance and a rundown on recent cryptocurrency litigation that shows just how unregulated the crypto market currently is. If you don't know, this is Litigation Nation. We recap the news and the law and litigation every week. You can find us everywhere, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts normally. Here's what you need to know. Up first, Jay Silvernail is, or should I say was, a criminal defense lawyer practicing in Oklahoma City through 2019. And I say through 2019 because in 2019, he was accused of assault and battery with a deadly weapon. Uh, When he shot someone in front of an Oklahoma City nightclub, he was convicted in October of 2019 after only 90 minutes of deliberation by a jury who recommended that he serve two and a half years in prison for his sentence. That's not where his bad luck stopped. Silvernail ran his own law practice up through his arrest, and between post-conviction and pre-sentencing, he continued to run his law firm from jail. And I guess you hear about how organized crime can sometimes be run from inside of prisons. Why not a law firm? Above the law reports that the Oklahoma Supreme Court made the most obvious joke before I could, and we don't steal jokes on this show, so I'll quote the Oklahoma Supreme Court, quote, cheekily referring to Silvernail as giving new meaning to the term jailhouse lawyer. Well done, Oklahoma Supreme Court. The shooting occurred in 2016, and in the lead up to his trial in 2019, he apparently made absolutely no contingencies for what would happen if he actually went to jail. Quoting from above the law, which is partially quoting from the OK Supreme Court opinion, quote, and yet for more than three years, Silvernail apparently took no steps to prepare for that contingency, the state Supreme Court said. Silvernail thought that as long as he could find lawyers to stand in from him at hearings, quote, he could operate his practice vicariously as a sort of general manager, the Oklahoma Supreme Court said, but it was not a good idea. Quote, the obstacles to effective representation from a jail cell should be obvious, the state Supreme Court said. As an inmate, Silvernail was unable to confer with clients confidentially. He was unable to communicate freely with prosecutors or other opposing counsel about his clients' cases. He was obviously unable to appear in court on his client's behalf. His ability to access legal resources, a computer, or even his own client's files was hampered, to say the least. Finally, practicing law from a jail cell arguably gives the appearance of impropriety. These conditions would have prompted a reasonable attorney to take a different tact. Well, After this, Silvernail was disbarred just this week and presumably will be out of jail soon, but he will need a new job. Best of luck to him. Up next, in municipal government news, Philadelphia is now one step closer to creating its own public bank to self-finance public projects. And as we'll talk about, municipalities all over the country are considering this idea as they shift from privately managed finances. The city council in Philly voted 15 to 1 to pass legislation to establish Philadelphia's Public Financial Authority, or PPFA, which would allow the city to create the nation's first municipal bank. I'm relying on the Philadelphia County website for this bit, and there's a publication from March of 2022 that gives the details. The legislation, um, I don't know if it's a bill or an ordinance in this context, so let's just call it legislation, was introduced by Councilmember Derek Green, who is a former banker. Quoting from the piece, 
quote, as a former banker and small business lender, Councilmember Green has identified access to capital for entities that fall through the gaps of the current lending environment as an urgent issue that demands action from the city. Currently, only 6% of businesses with employees in Philadelphia are owned by African-Americans, even though the city's population is 44% African-American. Only 4% of businesses with employees are owned by Latinx Philadelphians. Approximately 40% of minority-owned businesses in Philadelphia were forced to close because of the COVID-19 pandemic, further exacerbating existing wealth disparities and making credit access even more elusive. The goal of PPFA is not to compete against current businesses or organizations or duplicate existing services, but to offer credit enhancement products, such as letters of credit, that will provide greater opportunities for cooperatives, entrepreneurs of color, and other business organizations to access additional credit to help build cash flow and job growth, unquote. The law firm of Holland and Knight assisted in the project along with the municipal entities. Now, the PPFA isn't a traditional bank in the sense that state law does not allow for public entities to take private deposits, but it will operate in partnership with private financial institutions. Basically, the PPFA will make guarantees via letters of credit and things like that so that small businesses that otherwise would not have access to credit can get those funds. Ken Bank, who is a writer and an activist who I found this week, follows the beat pretty closely and wrote a piece last week on the legislation that put this issue onto my radar. He writes in peopleswork.org, quote, the mayor of Philadelphia will appoint a board of nine members serving six-year terms to oversee the general operations of the finance authority. Once established, this board of directors will create an executive committee to coordinate the daily functions and activities of the facility. The executive committee will be composed of a CEO and other officers with valuable experience in finance, capital markets, and banking, as well as academic training, but they will also reflect the diversity and needs of the surrounding community, unquote. So why is any of this newsworthy? A few reasons, in my opinion. First, there is precedent for public banking. Globally, countries like Germany have massive public banks, but you don't have to look abroad. There's a great example with a long history of success in North Dakota, of all places. The Bank of North Dakota, or BND, functions mostly as a banker's bank. It lends to small local banks and credit unions. About half of BND's $48 billion portfolio is business and agricultural loans, for example. And by participating in this lending market, the state of North Dakota is able to keep small and local banks competitive, which has a lot of advantages. For instance, North Dakota has more banks per capita than any state in the country, with 11 banks per 100,000 citizens. The total U.S. population only has access to two banks per 100,000 citizens. BND offers some of the lowest interest rates on student loans available in the country. BND has actually turned a profit every year since its inception, which is pretty interesting. According to the BND in the past 21 years, it has generated a billion dollars in profit, which mostly goes back to the state general fund, which funds education and other public services. It's a great bit of political history for the BND. A political rebellion of agricultural workers in 1915 led to the formation of the Nonpartisan League on a pretty radical platform of state control for certain things, such as banking. And the BND was born of those ideas in 1919. Anyways, BND is proof of concept that local governments can run institutions that capitalize the local economy and provide liquidity for local businesses without having to appeal to multinational banks. And the result seems to be, at least in North Dakota, more competition among smaller local banks, lower rates, targeted liquidity for project, projects that the state deems important, like agriculture, small businesses, etc. 
Now, the Philadelphia project would stop short of that and instead of lending directly would backstop loans from other financial institutions via letters of credit. But the net result should be similar to what happened in North Dakota. And it's worth mentioning that North Dakota only has a population of about 760,000, while Philadelphia has a population of 1.6 million. So the impact could be quite a lot. Now, the governor of New Jersey recently has proposed a state-owned bank when he ran for governor in 2017, and a state commission in New Jersey is currently working on the details of that proposal. California has also passed a public banking act, which allows county and municipal governments to establish community-owned banks. New York City, financial capital of the world, sorry, London, has proposed its own public banking bill, which I don't think has passed yet. Federal legislation in the House never got far, but at least people were talking about it at that level. And this isn't a policy podcast, but for those of you who work with municipal governments, these proposals may come up in the future. It'll be good for you to know about them. And as pandemic funding for municipalities dries up, the federal budget potentially shrinking in the coming years, state and local governments may be looking at alternative ways to finance the projects these governments are interested in. Personally, I think it makes a lot of sense for states to at least handle their own student loans, for example, at least states with large public colleges. The colleges are funded by taxpayers, but taxpayers who want to use those colleges have to get their money from large financial institutions, and that just doesn't make much sense to me. And this is one of those out-of-the-box policy proposals that may have legs, and like some other legislative trends we've mentioned here, could spread to other states and cities. And for our last story, Law360 has a nice write-up on trends in crypto litigation that is worth going through. It's broken down into three categories, criminal enforcement, civil enforcement, and private litigation, and we'll cover each of those here. Starting with criminal enforcement, quote, the first half of 2022 has been host to record-breaking criminal enforcement actions. In the past six months alone, the U.S. Department of Justice has seized a record $3.6 billion in digital assets and arrested two individuals for an alleged conspiracy to launder cryptocurrency. This falls on the heels of a DOJ announcement that is creating its own cryptocurrency enforcement team. With this has come novel theories of enforcement. For example, last month, the DOJ instituted an unprecedented action against an unnamed U.S. citizen accused of using virtual currency to evade sanctions in the case of NRA criminal complaint, unquote. NRA criminal complaint is an action that was filed by the DOJ against an unnamed citizen for using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. The Law 360 piece neatly summarizes this, quote, Although this is the first case of its kind, it is unlikely to be the last. It illustrates the increased willingness of government agencies to pursue criminal charges against those violating old laws with new forms of currency, unquote. So on to the civil enforcement aspect of this. Quote, civil enforcement has similarly continued to increase and even break records this year. Just this month, the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission sued Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, remember them from the Facebook movie, sued the Winklevoss's cryptocurrency exchange Gemini Trust Company LLC, alleging that the exchange misled CFTC staff about the safety of a proposed Bitcoin futures product. In February, the popular digital asset lending platform BlockFi Inc., settled with the SEC for $100 million in penalties for failing to register its retail crypto lending product in what represents the largest ever penalty against a cryptocurrency firm and the first in which a crypto company was charged with violating the registration provisions of the Investment Company Act. Shortly after, in May, the SEC announced that it was nearly doubling the size of its crypto assets and cyber unit 
And these regulatory actions followed two and a half years during which there was more cryptocurrency enforcement actions than any other previous year of enforcement combined, unquote. The piece goes on to detail a few SEC enforcement actions against crypto companies for offering unregistered securities. One of the questions in the SEC versus LBRY case that's discussed in the piece is whether crypto is a, quote, security within the meaning of the law and therefore whether the SEC can regulate it. The definition of security was supplied by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1946 in the case of SEC versus W.J. Howley Co., during which the Supreme Court said that a security is, quote, an investment of money in a common enterprise with profits to come solely from the efforts of others, unquote. So under that definition, are any of these seemingly thousands of different types of crypto coins considered securities? I kind of think so, but that's outside my area of expertise. If the SEC can regulate these projects, you'd think they'd have a chilling effect on some of the asset classes involved. And remember that cryptocurrency has evolved at breakneck speeds. Remember when people were buying NFTs on those stupid apes for hundreds of thousands of dollars? Lastly, private litigation. Quote, uncertainty concerning which cryptocurrencies are securities and which are not has bled from regulatory actions, which we just discussed, into private litigation. As of last month, digital assets have generated more than 200 class actions and other private litigation. Experts predict this trend will likely accelerate in 2022. A recent case, perhaps more than others, has its roots in this uncertainty, the Underwood versus Coinbase Global case, unquote. The Coinbase case, which is talked about in the piece, is fascinating. It's a class action where the class sued Coinbase, the largest crypto exchange in the U.S., for listing unregistered, quote, securities. Unregistered securities in this case are just any crypto coin. Well, I think actually all crypto coins. The class seeks to recover what they paid for their cryptocurrencies plus trading fees. So in all these areas, we're seeing the rules being made in real time. As crypto becomes more common and blockchain secured assets do too, regulators and courts are going to need to decide soon which rules apply or whether new rules are going to need to be made. Thanks, everyone. That's the show this week. Again, apologies for not being here last week, but you got to take some time off every now and then, right? Otherwise, you know where to find us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, etc. And we'll talk to you next week.